Hello and welcome to the Imagining Freedom podcast, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. I spoke in an earlier podcast about the ancient concept of consent of the governed, and that concept has never seemed so important in my lifetime as it does now. But in order to get people's consent, you have to win control of their minds and their opinions. And that's why the battle for people's opinions has become so intense in the last few weeks, with the most ridiculous and extreme censorship that I've ever seen in the so-called, laughably called, free world. When David Icke's interview on London Real was deleted from YouTube, Vimeo and a host of other outlets a couple of weeks ago, it made me more curious to hear what he had to say that was considered so dangerous to the establishment. But when the video that presented the, the research of two California doctors, Dan Erickson and Artin Masihi, was deleted from YouTube, it really seemed quite clear what was going on. Susan Bujiki, the CEO of YouTube, had announced that the video sharing platform would delete anything that conflicted with the World Health Organization recommendations. Erickson and Masihi's research suggested that the spread of COVID-19 was much more widespread than previously thought and that therefore the risk of dying from it was much lower than had been previously believed. They came across to me as doctors who had no other agenda, no desire to embarrass the establishment, but who just wanted to calm the public's fears and give people the good news that they could probably soon return to normal life without fear of harm. The fact that this video was deleted after it went viral suggests to me that there is another agenda here, to keep people controlled and in fear of their lives. I've been surprised at the level of sheer panic about this disease among most of my friends and some family members. It got to an almost extreme level last week when I stupidly answered a Facebook poll which was on a friend's timeline. The poll asked whether you thought that the lockdown should be ended. Everyone had put no or no way, but I wrote absolutely for the fit and healthy at least. I didn't even think about it until a few hours later when I went back on Facebook and saw that some of the friends, some of my friends had replied to my comment to express their surprise at my attitude and to ask if I wasn't worried that I might infect vulnerable people. I replied very politely saying that of course I wouldn't want to infect vulnerable people and that I had done shopping for people who were nervous about going out, and I used lots of hand sanitizer. And I also said that several scientists had suggested that it should be the elderly and immune-compromised people who were protected at home, not healthy. But this provoked even more shocked comments, and eventually I just decided to stay away from Facebook, as I know I should have done a long time ago. It's not as if I was posting all over social media, hectoring people with my opinions. All I did was answer a poll which had asked for my opinion. And I was really shocked at the reaction. I felt as if I was defending myself on trial for being a, a granny murderer. I feel sad that I will probably lose friends over this. And it makes me really admire the courage of people who have been speaking out on unpopular issues for a long time, including David Icke, even though I don't agree with all of his views. On Monday, I watched an interview with Robert F. Kennedy on London Real. Robert F. Kennedy has been questioning the vac vaccination policy in the United States for decades. And I found it quite awe-inspiring to hear how his views have been twisted and how his voice has effectively been silenced in the mainstream media. For someone with his family background to have allowed himself to have been marginalised over the years so that he could speak his truth is quite remarkable in, in my opinion. 
and quite humbling for someone like me who's worrying about what some friends on Facebook might think. I'm also surprised by the courage of the journalist Whitney Webb, who was recently interviewed by Derek Brose about her latest online articles investigating the shady and quite dark forces behind the Jeffrey Epstein case. When you look at real investigative journalists like Whitney Webb, it highlights how superficial and vacuous the mainstream media has become. But in its reporting of the coronavirus panic, I think it's hit new lows. I've actually got to the stage now where I can hardly bear to look at the mainstream media. I stopped watching TV in 2012, not intentionally, but simply because I was running a business at the time, working 12-hour days, and I felt I could do without the £45 a month it cost for the Virgin Media connection, and it would probably cost a lot more today. I was surprised at how quickly I lost interest in TV. I no longer read newspapers either. I just hate their political bias and moralistic tone but I couldn't fail to notice how the media has stoked this current panic. Even before the lockdown started, I remember that whenever I caught sight of a newspaper stand, it would be full of huge photographs of people wearing face masks or hazmat suits or lying down on hospital trolleys looking ill. And the same images would be thrust at me whenever I put on the BBC News Online website. I just felt compelled to avoid it as much as I could but my friends and family were clearly absorbing it all and some of them have become almost panicked beyond reason. I've lost a few good friends since 2007, mostly to illnesses like cancer. And over the last couple of years, several older relatives died. We went to so many funerals. And then my mum died in December. Despite the sadness of this, it makes death seem like a part of life. We're all going to die. I know that people young and old are tragically killed in the mountains and on the roads, but that awareness would never stop me going out hill walking. I feel that life is full of risk, and we all have to make decisions about the kind of risk that we're willing to take. So, I'm happy for other people to stay indoors to avoid COVID-19, but I don't understand what difference it makes whether I stay indoors or not. This seems to be a fundamental point of disconnect between myself and my friends and some of my relatives. I would have thought that it would be better for all of us if people like me, who are willing to risk catching the virus, go out and about and get on with our lives. That way, we're more likely to build up immunity. And we can also help keep the economy going for the people who are sheltering in, which would surely be helpful for them. I understand that the government initially felt it was important to flatten the curve and stop the hospitals becoming overwhelmed. But now that the curve has been flattened, I just don't see the benefit of keeping the fit and healthy people indoors. This is what I very carefully explained to my, my Facebook friends and some family members. But it seems to cause so much shock and outrage from most people that they don't even want to hear an alternative view. I can only think of two friends with whom I can have a calm discussion about this. It's the panic-induced shock and outrage of these reactions that really astonishes me. It doesn't make me angry with the people who react like that, because I think they are really suffering. They're absolutely terrified. It's almost heartbreaking. I feel as if I'm seeing people fall into the kind of cycle of negativity that I've occasionally witnessed before in other people in the past. The kind of negativity that's almost infectious. If you stay around someone like that for too long, it can start to drag you down. That's why I've had to stay away from social media recently, because it feels as if there's a mass outbreak of negativity and despair. 
And it's really, it's almost heartbreaking to watch. I know some people who are normally happy and resilient, but now they almost have an aura of depression around them. And if you're laughing and joking, they seem to find it personally offensive. I think that's where some of this public shaming comes from. It's as if people are saying, how dare they be enjoying themselves at a time like this? I was listening to the Richie Allen show yesterday and he was interviewing the psychic Mark Bierski. Bierski was describing the current attitude of the mainstream media as dark and negative and even describing it as voodoo. That really resonated with me. I just thought, that's exactly what it is. These newspapers and TV and radio news programmes are actually casting a dark spell over people, a dark cloud of negativity. It seems almost evil and it's something that I find myself completely recoiling from. I'm utterly repelled by it. It very cleverly targets the emotions, the heart, not the head. Many of these reports are designed to be glanced at and absorbed, not read in detail. One of the most ghoulish examples of this kind of emotionally charged panic propaganda was a report that I saw on the BBC News website last week. The title was Coronavirus, New York Funeral Home Puts Corpses in Lorries. It was designed to hit people with the message that there are so many people dying in New York that bodies are having to be put on trucks. But the story wasn't really about coronavirus at all. And in normal times, it probably wouldn't have even got a mention in the international press. If you read the full story, it was saying that the funeral home's freezer had stopped working. And because of this, they'd had to quickly bring in refrigerated trucks to keep the bodies at the required temperature. But if you're already in a heightened state of tension, you might only notice the words, police were called to the scene and sealed off the area, and workers in protective suits were later seen moving bodies. If you had the presence of mind to scroll down further, you'd see the sentence. It was unclear if these were victims of the coronavirus. The story adds more scaremongering statistics and inflammatory comments before slipping in footage of so-called mass burials on Hart Island in New York, which James Corbett exposed a few weeks ago on a video called Lies, Damned Lies and Coronavirus Statistics. I'll put the link in the show notes. If you watch the BBC video clip right through, it explains that Heart Island has been used for 150 years to bury people who have no next of kin or who can't afford a funeral. So it's sad that people are being buried there, but nothing out of the ordinary. The BBC also just happened to have a post about Typhoid Mary, the notorious Irish cook in New York in the late 1800s. She was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid, but she refused to stop working as a cook and eventually died in jail. Typhoid is a totally different disease than coronavirus. It's spread in water and food and by poor, poor hygiene, and it's much more deadly than coronavirus. But by posting an article about Typhoid Mary in the midst of a pandemic, it's bound to seed the idea that people showing no symptoms of coronavirus could be like Typhoid Mary, especially if they don't get the vaccine when it's available. And the reports that give a more balanced and less sensationalist view of the pandemic are hardly noticed. They're effectively hidden in plain sight. In the third episode of my podcast, I read part of this report that appeared on the BBC News website on the 16th of April. But I think it's worth reading again, because people are clearly not taking it on board and realising what it means for the overall reported numbers of coronavirus deaths. The report is titled... 
Coronavirus, how to understand the death toll. It says, The death figures being reported daily are hospital cases where a person dies with the coronavirus infection in their body. Because it is a notifiable disease, cases have to be reported. But what the figures do not tell us is to what extent the virus is causing the death. It could be a major cause, a contributory factor, or simply present when they are dying of something else. For example, an 18-year-old in Coventry tested positive for coronavirus the day before he died and was reported as its youngest victim at the time. But the hospital subsequently released a statement saying his death had been due to a separate significant health condition and not connected to the virus. There are, however, other cases, including health workers, where people have died with no known health conditions. And there's another BBC report specifically about coronavirus deaths in Scotland, where I live. That report was published on April the 8th. And it's not really surprising that I wasn't aware of it at the time, because this vital explanation of how the figures are calculated is put right at the bottom of the post. And in fact, the post is entitled, Coronavirus, New Figures Suggest Higher Death Toll. The report talks about the then increase in the death figures. And you have to scroll right down to the bottom of the post to find out that, as it says, the figures which have been released so far reflect how many people have died within 28 days of testing positive for the virus. The new stats are sourced from the National Records of Scotland and capture a bigger picture. They include all cases where COVID-19 is mentioned on a death certificate, even if the patient was not in hospital and had not been tested, and even if the virus was one of a number of factors. So these figures will include all cases where the virus was confirmed, suspected or probable cause of death, either as an underlying cause or directly contributing to it. The Nobel Prize winning scientist Professor Michael Levitt was recently interviewed on the excellent YouTube channel Unheard. And again, I'll put the link to the interview in the show notes. Levitt said that many of the COVID-19 deaths were either dead before they were tested or else they had up to three other conditions. He said that the news should be reporting this. And he added, countries seem to be racing to have as many COVID deaths as they could. There are many other scientists who have been taking a more measured and less alarmist view of the current outbreak, but they don't seem to be getting much airtime in the mainstream news. I think there might be a couple of other reasons for the frenzy of panic over this disease. And I don't know if, if I personally have been too laid back about it, maybe because I've been fascinated with the research into the microbiome over the past few years. In the late 1990s, I suddenly developed an intolerance to cow's milk products. I was initially diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, but luckily I found out that when I didn't have cow's milk, I didn't get IBS. So over the years, I've become very interested in the gut. And I think that's given me a different approach to health and disease. If I'm concerned about my health, my first approach is to try and build up my immune system by eating probiotics and prebiotics. Things like crunchy raw fruit and veg, lots of it, goat's yoghurt, because I can't have cow's milk, stinky cheeses made from goats and sheep's milk, pickles, and anything fermented, which includes beer and wine. I've read so many books on the microbiome, and I just find it fascinating. I also take vitamin D tablets every day, 
because we don't get much sun in Scotland and as my skin is dark I really need to take the vitamin D and I also try to get as much sunshine, daylight and fresh air as possible. That's been my approach to health for years and I haven't been ill for years. So the idea of shutting myself indoors goes against everything I believe in. And it's interesting that Dr Dan Erickson, one of the Californian doctors who was banned from YouTube, also spoke about the importance of the microbiome and building up the immune system. Natural health treatments cost very little and they tend not to fit in with the agendas of big corporations. That's my opinion, anyway, on why videos like the two doctors in California are not favoured by the establishment. I'm also a huge believer in the impact of the emotions on physical health. I've no proof for it, but I tend to think that just about the worst thing you can do for your health is to hold on to really negative emotions like anger and anxiety. I've seen people get into a spiral of negativity and it never has a happy ending unless they can find a way out of it. I think laughter is one of the best things you can do for your health. It seems to me that the press was frequently in a shrill level of hysteria long before this current pandemic started. We tend to get yellow weather warnings and named storms for weather that would have been described as a bit breezy 20 years ago. Climate change is rarely out of the media. And what annoys me is that it's not just about human-powered or anthropogenic climate change, but it tends to be focused on the, the idea that we, in inverted commas, are seen as the ones to blame. It's always the little people who are blamed, the people who have to use their cars for work, or who are accused of turning their heating up too high, or who dare to fly on planes too often, while the world's leaders fly around the world to supposedly sort out these problems and seem to happily drop bombs on the Middle East and Africa. Issues like climate change are much, much more complex than the press headlines would su suggest. But the thing that strikes people emotionally out of all this is that we are to blame. Humans are the problem. And it's almost as if they blame themselves and expect that some big massive disaster is going to happen almost as a punishment. They think that this is the great reckoning, that there are too many of us and now it's our turn to die, just like all the species that we have destroyed. And on top of this, we have the 100th anniversary of the great flu pandemic of 1918-20, to 20, which took more lives than the First World War. Again, many people seem to think we were almost overdue a pandemic, as if it was sort of inevitable. And as usual, I had a different opinion. Maybe it's because of my age. I was born in 1962, and I grew up hearing stories of how poor people were before the Second World War. There were so many undernourished people in Britain at the time of the First World War that the army had problems finding enough healthy soldiers to fight. Add to that the emotional toll that the war must have taken, not just on the soldiers, but on the people at home who were losing friends and relatives on the battlefields and just having bereavement after bereavement. It doesn't really seem surprising to me that that disease caused so much devastation. I think conditions are totally different today, though I don't think that the lockdown's helping the situation. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.